Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was a sunny spring morning in May of 1992 when Allison Shaw, a young mother of two toddlers living in Orangeville, Ontario, happened to see a story in the newspaper that caught her eye. Allison and her husband, Darris, had moved from Toronto to the small town a few years earlier to enjoy a quieter lifestyle and raise their two children. And while life in the rural community was indeed more peaceful, the bucolic setting had been recently rocked by a series of bizarre home break-ins and a grisly double murder. A middle-aged couple from Toronto who owned a weekend property in nearby Caledon, had been kidnapped and murdered. During their intense investigation of the double homicide, the police were certain that a drifter who had been breaking into local homes and cottages had now graduated to murder. But they had no idea who he was. Their only clue to his identity was a rough sketch and some bizarre handwritten military equipment lists that he had left behind at several of the cottages he had broken into. Now, Orangeville mom, Allison Shaw, was staring at the police sketch and the military lists on the front page of the Toronto Star. She recognized both right away. The man in that sketch was a former business partner of her husband's. But strangely, he had simply vanished months earlier. The man had been in their home many times. In fact, he had even babysat the couple's young daughter. Now the police were saying he was a killer who had kidnapped and murdered a Toronto couple. Alison Shaw picked up the phone right away. She had a strange story to tell the police and she knew the name of the man they were after. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of a sexual sadist and murderer who terrorized a rural Ontario community before setting his sights on another Canadian community further west. Originally nicknamed the House Hermit, he would soon earn a new moniker the cottage killer, after a double murder. But even when his true identity was revealed, the experienced survivalist would continue to elude police. He knew how to hide, and he knew how to hunt his prey. He had a sexual obsession and addiction that needed to be fed, and it wouldn't be long before he struck again. This is Monster in the Woods, The Crimes of David Alexander Snow. Start of abduction, assault, and murder. Another woman who was also found dead. Sexually assaulting in every way you can imagine. Alison Shaw did not like David Snow, but she tolerated him because he was her husband's business partner. After Allison and her husband, Darris, moved to Orangeville, Ontario in 1988, 
David Snow, a local antique dealer, was one of the first people they met. He immediately struck Allison as a strange character. He was introverted, lived alone in a dilapidated house, didn't drive, and seemed unconcerned about his personal hygiene. His teeth were rotting, and you could usually smell him before you saw him. Yet, Allison's husband enjoyed David's company and often invited his new business partner over for drinks or dinner. Eventually, Allison got used to their new friend's odd ways, and he even became Uncle David for their infant daughter. He's just eccentric, her husband would often say. David Alexander Snow grew up in Orangeville, Ontario, a picturesque town 60 kilometers northwest of Toronto. The third of four children, David's father was a supervisor at the local chemical plant, and they were a well-respected family. When David was 12, his father died from a sudden heart attack in front of him. Years later, that tragic event would be considered a key turning point in David's emotional development. A quiet, skinny kid, David never got into any trouble, as far as anyone knew. And after finishing high school, he worked a number of manufacturing jobs before developing a passion for antiques. David worked for various local antique dealers before finally opening his own antique shop called Simply Timeless in the late 1980s. And while he was regarded as an eccentric loner with poor hygiene habits, most people in town didn't really spend too much time thinking about David Snow. But then, on September 13, 1991, 37-year-old David Snow simply vanished. When David Snow disappeared in the fall of 1991, most people in the small town of Orangeville didn't even notice. But Allison Shaw and her husband, Darris, were concerned. Not only did it seem out of character for a man who didn't even drive, but he also owed the Shaws a fair amount of money. According to others in town, this wasn't the first time David Snow had disappeared. Desperate to recoup some of the money David owed them, the Shaws needed to sell off some of the antiques David had stored at their place for way too long, and other items he'd left in a rented Quonset hut. Sifting through the piles of antiques and junk David had accumulated, the Shaws came across some of David's personal belongings, and what they found was disturbing. In an old suitcase, they discovered hundreds of explicit photos of women and hardcore pornography magazines depicting violence and subjugation. Images of women's specific body parts had been carefully cut out and filed. Another box contained hardcore videos. It was a shocking discovery. But in addition to the pornography, they also found a strange handwritten journal listing columns of German, Japanese, and American military machines used in World War II. The Shaws knew that David was a history buff, but this seemed like an odd list to collect. Alison Shaw was beginning to realize that her intuition about her husband's former business partner was correct. There was something not right about David Snow. Eight months after David Snow vanished, Alison Shaw and her husband decided to relocate to Vancouver, British Columbia. After three years in Orangeville, they wanted a fresh start. And it was just days before leaving when Alison spotted a news story on the front page of the Toronto Star. Police hunt military buff in two murders, read the headline. The article went on to say that the Ontario Provincial Police were on the hunt for a man suspected in the brutal murder of a Toronto couple who had been attacked in their Caledon farmhouse. And the man was also suspected 
of other serious crimes in the area. An hour's drive northwest of Toronto, Caledon is a predominantly rural area dotted with sprawling country estates and quaint hobby farms. But in the fall of 1991, the area had been rocked by a series of mysterious crimes. On October 3rd, Carolyn Case, a Toronto antique dealer, had vanished from her shop, The Jeweled Elephant, on Bloor Street West. The police had no clues to her sudden disappearance. But then later that month, her Mercedes station wagon was found abandoned in a ditch on a Caledon country road. The interior of the car was splattered in blood, leaving investigators to believe that Carolyn Case had been murdered and her killer had dumped her body. But a full-scale search of the area did not uncover her remains. Then, as the fall turned into a bitter winter, Caledon experienced a series of bizarre break-ins. Someone was breaking into weekend homes and cottages that had been boarded up for the winter. Whoever it was, was squatting in the homes for several days, stealing clothing, jewelry, and antique guns. The intruder was also leaving behind several strange calling cards, including feces wrapped in newspaper, bottled urine, and lists of military equipment from World War II. Police soon dubbed the unwanted guest the house hermit. In March 1992, just as the snow was receding and temperatures were warming up, the Appletons, a retired couple from Toronto, decided to check on their cottage. When they arrived, they were surprised to find the cottage in total disarray. It was obvious that someone had broken in and made themselves at home. There were dirty clothes and food wrappers strewn about, and there was a foul stench in the air. They would need to drive to the local OPP detachment to report the break-in. But just moments after they arrived, they were confronted by the unwanted squatter. The disheveled man produced a gun and demanded that they drive him back to their home in Toronto. They complied. But halfway back to the city, the foul-smelling stranger demanded Mr. Appleton pull onto a deserted side road. The elderly man refused. He knew the man would kill them. But if they could get into the city, maybe they could alert someone. When they reached downtown Toronto, the hermit stole their cash and then suddenly jumped out of their car, disappearing into the crowd. When the police inspected the Appleton's car and cottage, they found fingerprints that matched the prints from the other break-ins. The Appleton's kidnapper had also left behind his urine and feces in their cottage. The Appletons provided a sketch of what the kidnapper looked like. The man was probably in his early 40s and was tall and thin with a receding hairline. He was disheveled in appearance with dirty clothes and a distinctive body odor. Whoever the house hermit was, he had just gone from break and enter to armed kidnapping. Now he was on the run and he needed to be caught before he attacked again. Ian Blackburn and his wife Nancy loved spending time at their Caledon farmhouse. Ian, a 54-year-old Toronto realtor, had inherited the property from his father and his sister Susan lived next door. 49-year-old Nancy, a public health nurse, enjoyed working in the garden of their rural property and relaxing on the wraparound porch. With no children, the Blackburns had more flexibility with their leisure time. The 50-acre property owned by the Blackburns was just off a main regional highway on a quiet side road. Their small, unpretentious white farmhouse was set back from the road and was surrounded by mature trees and an apple orchard. Also situated on their property was a very unusual octagon-shaped barn 
dating back to 1894. Octagonal barns became popular in Ontario in the late 19th century. Promoted largely for their practicality for agricultural purposes, the eight-sided style also had a religious meaning, as the lack of deep, dark corners meant there was nowhere for the devil to hide. Ian had heard about the recent break-ins in Caledon, so he decided to drive up midweek to check on their property, and he was looking forward to a family Easter gathering the following weekend. So on the morning of Tuesday, April 7, 1992, Ian drove to Caledon in his burgundy Cadillac. Several neighbors later reported seeing Ian's car parked in the driveway that day, but no one remembered seeing Ian. The following day, there were two cars in the driveway, which wasn't unusual as Nancy usually drove to Caledon in her own car. But what was unusual was the fact that no one had seen or heard from the Blackburns for a few days, and both had failed to show up at their workplaces. Susan Osborne, Ian's sister, had a key to their Caledon property, so she decided to go next door to take a look. Nothing seemed amiss in the farmhouse, but Nancy's car was no longer in the driveway. On Monday, April 13th, Susan Osborne called her son Jamie in Toronto and asked him to go by his aunt and uncle's house to see if they were there. When Jamie Osborne arrived at the house on St. Leonard's Avenue, he noticed several days of newspapers and mail piled up at the front door. Nancy's car was in the driveway. Inside the house, everything seemed normal, except Nancy's purse was lying open on her bed. He called his parents to tell them what he had discovered. Later that same evening, the Osbournes asked their son to return to the Blackburns' house to check if their cat was still there. If they had left the cat, then maybe they would return soon. Jamie found the cat in the basement, and it was obvious that it was in distress. It had no food or water. Jamie knew that his aunt and uncle would never leave home without making sure someone was taking care of the cat. Using a spare set of keys he found in the house, Jamie decided to check in Nancy's car. Maybe something in the car would indicate where they had gone. Again, there was nothing out of place. But looking in the front seat, he noticed some balled-up Kleenex that appeared to have blood on it. Jamie decided to check the trunk in case they had packed some suitcases. And it was there he made a horrific discovery. The bodies of Ian and Nancy Blackburn. The murders of Ian and Nancy Blackburn came as a terrible shock to all that knew them, both in Toronto and in Caledon. The couple who had been married for 25 years, were well-liked and did not have a single enemy. The Joint Toronto Police and Ontario Provincial Police investigation turned up few clues at either residence, but a broken window at the Caledon property indicated to them that someone had broken in and Ian had likely surprised an intruder. Searching the roads and fields close to the Blackburns' farmhouse, the police eventually found several bags of garbage thrown in nearby ditches. Inside the bags, they discovered bottles filled with human urine, feces wrapped in newspaper, and lists of vintage military equipment from World War II. As strange as these items were, the Caledon police had seen them before at the other properties that had been broken into, and at the cottage of the Appletons, the Toronto couple who had been kidnapped at gunpoint. Now it looked like the mysterious intruder, nicknamed the House Hermit, had preyed on another couple, but this time he had killed them. The police were certain that all of the crimes were connected, and they had not forgotten about Carolyn Case, the Toronto woman whose blood-splattered car had been found in Caledon, not far from the Blackburns' farmhouse. 
But even with all the evidence found by the investigators, identifying the mysterious squatter was proving difficult. Desperate to find him before he struck again, the police took an unusual step. They decided to reveal their best evidence to the public. Two weeks after the Blackburns' murder, the Toronto Star newspaper posted a police sketch and a collection of military writings by the man they were now calling the Cottage Killer. In a joint decision, the Toronto Police and the Caledon OPP had decided to release a piece of unique evidence they had discovered that linked several Caledon, Ontario break-ins with the kidnapping of one couple and the murder of Ian and Nancy Blackburn. Following the release of a police sketch of the suspect and the bizarre handwritten military equipment lists, hundreds of tips poured in. Most of them led nowhere, but there was one that stood out. A woman who had lived in Orangeville said she knew who the man in the sketch was and had recognized the handwriting and military lists. Her name was Allison Shaw, and she was certain that the man the police were looking for was David Alexander Snow. Running the name David Snow through police records, investigators soon learned that Snow did not have a criminal record, but he had been charged with fraud. And while he had never been convicted, his fingerprints were on file. When compared to those of the mysterious house hermit, they were a match. The Toronto police soon headed to Orangeville. They wanted to learn everything they could about David Alexander Snow. When the authorities searched Snow's dilapidated home, they found pornography that had been cut from magazines and pasted into albums under different categories of female body parts. They also found boxes of books related to the subject of military equipment. When they looked in the attic, they realized that Snow had been living up there like a fugitive for months. In a collection of photographs, they also discovered a picture of a unique octagon-shaped barn located on the Blackburns' property. It looked like David Snow knew who the Blackburns were before he killed them. Investigators finally knew who the house hermit, a.k.a. the cottage killer, was. Now they just needed to find him. A Canada-wide warrant was issued for 37-year-old David Alexander Snow. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Monday, June 29th, 1992, 26-year-old Rosalind Taylor was working alone at a clothing store she managed in the Kitsilano area of Vancouver. But just before closing, she noticed a male customer walking in and out of the store, claiming to be looking for a gift for his family. The man was unkept and had a foul body odor. A few minutes after the store closed and Rosalind had locked the front door, the man was back rapping on the window, asking her to let him in, as he had finally made up his mind on what to buy. It had been a slow day at the store, so Rosalind decided to let him in. It was a decision she would regret for the rest of her life. As soon as the door locked behind them, the man pulled out a gun and forced her into the back storeroom where he ordered her to take off her clothes. He bound her wrists and then began sexually assaulting her. Moments later, the man heard a noise coming from the front of the store and walked out of the storeroom to investigate. Fearing for her life, Rosalind unlocked the back door of the store and ran naked and screaming into the street. When the Vancouver police responded to the brazen assault, Rosalind was able to give a clear description of her attacker a disheveled and dirty, middle-aged white man with a receding hairline and a disgusting body odor. Five days after the attack on Rosalind in Kitsilano, 21-year-old Lenore Ratray was working alone in a photo studio on Hastings Street when a man walked in near closing time and pulled a gun. The man took Lenore out of the store and down a busy street in broad daylight, passing pedestrians and rush hour traffic. No one noticed the odd pair. After crossing the second Narrows Bridge towards North Vancouver, Lenore was led another eight kilometers into a wooded area where the man had set up a small camp. She was now at his mercy. Eight days later, on July 11th, 19-year-old Monica Fast was working alongside her boss in a video rental store in North Vancouver. At around 11 a.m., a scruffy, foul-smelling man walked into the store. Walking up to the counter, he flashed a gun and demanded they go into a back room of the store. Using telephone cord ripped from the wall, the man tied up the manager and took Monica hostage. The kidnapper forced Monica into her car and drove away. The store manager was eventually able to free himself and called 911. Searching the immediate area, the RCMP soon discovered the young woman's car in a secluded area of Mount Seymour Provincial Park. While searching the car, officers heard screams coming from within the dense woods. Racing into the forest, they discovered Monica tied to a tree. As the officers were untying the terrified teenager, they heard more screams coming from deeper within the woods. They rushed towards the screams and found another woman tied to a tree. It was Lenore Ratway, who had gone missing eight days earlier. Close to where the women had been found, they discovered a makeshift campsite strewn with garbage. There, they also found two guns 
which they were quickly able to trace to an Ontario investigation and a Canadian-wide manhunt. David Alexander Snow was wanted in connection with the double murder of a Toronto couple, Ian and Nancy Blackburn. He had been on the run from Ontario for three months. Soon, a massive manhunt was underway for the wanted fugitive, who had abducted two women and had attempted to kidnap a third in the span of 12 days. Using search dogs and helicopters, dozens of RCMP officers and Vancouver police combed the surrounding parks and forests. Armed roadblocks were set up, and local homeowners were instructed to be on the lookout. There was a dangerous armed predator on the streets of North Vancouver, and the police needed to catch him before he struck again. They knew it was only a matter of time. Later that same evening, Dahlia Jelenu was looking forward to getting home after a long shift. The 53-year-old grandmother worked at the Bridge House restaurant in North Vancouver. It was just after 3.30 a.m. when Dahlia locked up the restaurant and was heading to her car in the darkened parking lot. Suddenly, someone grabbed her from behind. He had a gun shoved into her ribs. He told her he needed money and he didn't care what he had to do to get it. He then forced her back into the empty restaurant where he began assaulting her. But the re-entry into the restaurant triggered a silent alarm. When the phone rang, her attacker realized it was the alarm company. With a gun pointed at her head, Dahlia told the person on the other end of the phone that she was fine. False alarm. But there was something in Dahlia's voice that told the alarm company employee that all was not right. They had never gotten a false alarm from that location before. In the early morning hours of July 12th, the most extensive manhunt in North Vancouver was underway, with most of the city's police force combing the Mount Seymour area in search of the armed fugitive. But 15 kilometers west, things were relatively quiet when two Vancouver officers, Constable Peter Cross and Constable John Woodlock, on night patrol, received a call about an alarm at the Bridge House restaurant. The one-story log structure that resembled an alpine lodge was a popular tourist spot across the road from the famous Capilano Suspension Bridge. Pulling into the deserted parking lot, the two officers did not notice anything out of the ordinary, but decided to check out the back of the restaurant on foot. As Constable Cross walked across the far side of the building, a movement startled him. His flashlight suddenly caught the image of a dark figure about 20 feet away. Moving closer, the officer could see a man in dark clothing who was kneeling over something on the ground. It was a woman. The woman was on her back, naked from the waist down. The man was making a twisting motion at her head area that appeared to be covered with a bag. Suddenly, looking up, the man jumped off the woman and ran towards the woods. Officer Cross gave chase and quickly caught up to the man. Without thinking, he tackled the man to the ground and threw a set of handcuffs on him. A gun was later found on the attacker. Moments later, Officer Woodlock came upon the scene and rushed towards the victim. He pulled the plastic bag off her head and managed to unwind the ligature around her neck. The middle-aged woman was clinging to life. The two patrol officers responding to a silent alarm had captured the dangerous fugitive that ignited the largest manhunt in North Vancouver history. David Snow, a.k.a. the house hermit and cottage killer, had finally been caught just moments before he would have claimed another victim. David Snow's Vancouver trial began in August of 1992. 
Dozens of reporters filled the courtroom, anxious to hear the disturbing details of Snow's reign of terror against four women. The first witness to testify was Rosalind Taylor, the 26-year-old clothing shop clerk who had been attacked by Snow. She recalled the terror she experienced when Snow held her at gunpoint, stripped her naked, and sexually assaulted her. Luckily, she had managed to escape and run for her life. Next on the stand was Lenore Ratway. The 26-year-old woman said that on the night of July 3, 1992, at around 6 p.m., Snow entered her photo shop on East Hastings Avenue in Vancouver. He said he wanted to get a family portrait done. Snow abducted her at gunpoint and then marched her eight kilometers into a densely wooded area in North Vancouver. When she tried to resist and run, she said Snow punched her so hard in the face she collapsed. She did not resist after that. For the next eight terrifying days, Snow kept her as his sexual slave at a makeshift campsite. During her captivity, Lenore testified that David Snow would show her his three handguns, often aiming the smallest gun at her head. Do you want me to show you what I can do to you? He would ask. Calling her his outstanding catch, Snow would lift her hog-tied body about an inch off the ground and then drop her. She told the hushed courtroom that Snow forced her to perform sexual acts three or four times a day and spanked her once a day. But he never punched her after the first night, she added. I was like a toy to him, Lenore said. He didn't see me as a human being, she added. The third witness, Dahlia Jelenu, testified she waged World War II against Snow after he put a gun to her ribs and forced her back into the North Vancouver restaurant. Dahlia was closing up the restaurant where she worked when she was confronted by David Snow. It turned out that Snow had traveled over 10 kilometers through the night over the top of the mountains to evade the massive police search that was underway near Mount Seymour. Snow pushed Dahlia inside the restaurant, triggering a silent alarm. Snow said he wanted money and would do anything to get it. But Dahlia told him that there was no money at the restaurant. Frustrated, he then took Dahlia outside and was demanding that she give him her car keys. Dahlia lied, saying the car in the lot was not hers and she was waiting for a cab. Snow then began viciously beating and sexually assaulting her. Snow stomped on her stomach to the point that her ribcage and breastbone separated, and then he began punching her repeatedly. She then felt her dress being removed as he was binding her arms and legs. With a strong voice but shaking hands, Dahlia told the court that she knew that she was in the fight of her life. The 53-year-old grandmother said she fought back with strength she never knew she had. I went crazy, she told the court. I was thinking about my sons and my granddaughter, and I thought, this is not the way I want to die. Her attacker didn't realize that he had chosen the wrong woman to victimize. Dahlia had experienced terror before, as a Lithuanian refugee in a Nazi concentration camp. At the age of four, she, along with her mother and older brother, had been sent to Auschwitz, where they were imprisoned for four years before being liberated. She had seen firsthand what evil men could do and had lived to tell about it. Now she was staring into the face of another monster and she wasn't about to give up without a fight. But Snow eventually overpowered her, fracturing her skull and tying her up with her own clothes. He stuffed her slip in her mouth, put a bag over her head, and began choking her around the neck with a wire. She said then she realized he was going to kill her.
on Friday, September 11, 1992, David Snow was found guilty of kidnapping, aggravated sexual assault causing bodily harm, unlawful confinement, choking with the intent to commit an indictable offense, and unlawful use of a firearm. But in his verdict, trial judge Jerome Paradis stopped short of convicting Snow of the attempted murder of Dahlia Jelenu, saying, I cannot conclude that the placing of the wire around the neck of the victim and or the placing of the plastic bag over her head are sufficient to establish a specific intent to kill her. The judge's decision and words enraged Dahlia Jelenu, and victim advocates were quick to criticize the judge's ruling calling the decision another blatant example of extreme gender bias in Canadian courtrooms. One year following Snow's conviction on multiple offenses, another hearing was held in Vancouver to determine whether or not he met the criteria of a dangerous offender, meaning he could be incarcerated indefinitely for the protection of the Canadian public. Several psychiatrists testified and agreed that Snow was a sexual sadist who derived pleasure from causing pain to his victims. He also suffered from an underlying antisocial personality disorder that prevented him from feeling any empathy for others. Asked if he could be rehabilitated, the doctors agreed that his specific traits generally corresponded with poor outcomes in treatment and higher recidivism. If released, David Snow would likely reoffend. David Snow's older brother was also called to testify. Victor Snow spoke about David's inability to hold down a job and how he had bailed him out of several financial messes. He was always in a rage with somebody that he worked for, he said. According to him, David's behavior was a constant stress to the family for years. Victor Snow testified that he had spoken to David about his poor personal hygiene habits and how he had tried to get David to see a psychiatrist for years. He's been a walking time bomb all his life, said Victor Snow. On July 23, 1993, David Snow was officially classified as a dangerous offender. He would be imprisoned indefinitely, most likely for the rest of his life. After his two trials in Vancouver, David Snow was sent back to Ontario. On the morning of October 7, 1993, 38-year-old Snow was charged with the first-degree murders of Ian and Nancy Blackburn. Later that same day, the skeletal remains of Carolyn Case were discovered in Caledon, only 500 yards from where the police had located her Mercedes station wagon 11 months earlier. How the police and specially trained search dogs had missed her body was the question her family wanted answers to. The double murder trial for David Snow began on a snowy day in February 1997, five years after Ian Blackburn and his wife Nancy had been tortured, murdered, and stuffed into the trunk of their car. For the Blackburn's family, the wait to see Snow in court had been excruciating. In his opening address, prosecutor Hank Goody said that the evidence presented would show that Snow surprised Ian Blackburn at the couple's Caledon farmhouse and then forced Ian Blackburn to call his wife and ask her to drive out to the property. When Nancy arrived, she was hogtied and raped. Six days later, on April 13, 1992, the bodies of Ian and Nancy were found in the trunk of her parked car in the driveway of their Toronto home. Autopsies confirmed multiple blunt force injuries and bruising all over Nancy's body, with ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, neck, and mouth. Nancy had been strangled to death. Ian had blunt force injury 
to his neck and face, indicating he had been beaten with the muzzle of a gun. Injuries to his throat indicated that he had been asphyxiated. The authorities believed that Nancy had been killed at the farmhouse and was then placed in the trunk before snow forced Ian Blackburn to drive back to Toronto. Then, according to the Crown Attorney, the day after the Blackburn killings, the accused took a train to Vancouver, where he kidnapped and sexually assaulted four female victims. At his makeshift campsite in the woods, police found a 33mm camera and camera bag that belonged to Ian Blackburn. In his opening statement, defense attorney Sheldon Goldberg said that his client had admitted to a series of abductions and sexual assaults in the Vancouver area for which he was serving an indefinite sentence, but that did not mean he was also guilty of murder. For the next several weeks, the Crown called dozens of witnesses, including Snow's four female victims from Vancouver. And while it had been over five years since Snow had terrorized them, having to face him in court brought back their trauma. Despite his incarceration, he was their boogeyman and would forever haunt them. The Crown also called Darris Shaw, Snow's former friend and business partner. Shaw told the jury about meeting Ian and Nancy Blackburn 18 months before they were killed. While out driving one day, he said that David spotted the unique octagon-shaped barn on the Blackburn's property. They ended up speaking with Ian Blackburn about possibly purchasing the barn to disassemble and resell in another location. Another witness testified that Snow had admitted to killing the Blackburns. The former inmate told the court that while in prison awaiting trial, Snow had boasted to him that he was turned on by the expression on the Blackburn's faces as he choked them to death. The Crown's final witness was a forensics expert who verified that David Snow's DNA had been found on a bloodied Kleenex left in the Blackburn's car. The trial had lasted 94 days. On July 18, 1997, David Alexander Snow was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced 25 years for each murder to be served concurrently. Snow was never tried for the murder of Carolyn Case due to a lack of evidence, but police were certain it was Snow that kidnapped her from her Etobicoke store and forced her to drive to Caledon where her car and body were eventually found. During their investigation, the police discovered that Snow had been at his mother's home in Toronto the night before Carolyn Case disappeared. David Snow's mother lived in Bloor West Village, right around the corner from Carolyn Case's antique shop. To this day, David Snow remains a suspect in 10 other murders in the Caledon, Albion Hills area dating back to 1977. When the OPP searched his Orangeville home in late 1992, they found a hand-drawn map with routes leading to several places where dead bodies had been discovered. Snow was always on the hunt for valuable antiques, and it looked like some people were forced to part with their treasures with their lives. Since being imprisoned, David Snow has been convicted of several additional offenses, including assault causing bodily harm and uttering threats to another inmate. Multiple psychiatric and psychological assessments during his incarceration have diagnosed him with sexual sadism and narcissistic personality disorder. A 2013 psychological risk assessment Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Characterize snow as a high risk to violently and or sexually reoffend. Snow has made numerous submissions to the parole board since his incarceration. He has expressed that he would like to be released to a community residential facility, participate in volunteer activities, and potentially find a part-time job. Asked by the parole board about being a sexual deviant, Snow replied, Well, I must be, but said he derived no sexual gratification in assaulting his victims. To date, all requests for day and full parole have been denied. In 1988, Alison Shaw and her husband moved from the big city to a quaint rural Ontario town. There they hoped to raise their children and enjoy a more relaxed pace of life. They could have never known what was waiting for them in that town and how a chance meeting with a local antiques dealer would forever alter their lives. In 1998, Alison Shaw published a book about the man who befriended her and her husband when they first moved to Orangeville, Ontario in the late 1980s. The book, called A Friend of the Family, explores Alison's strained relationship with David Snow and how she ignored her own intuition when others, including her own husband, said the foul-smelling loner was just eccentric. Knowing that a sexual sadist and serial killer had been close to her family, even babysitting her infant daughter, Alison was forced to confront her own vulnerability. And writing the book also helped her to resolve feelings of guilt that she had, wondering if she could have done anything to stop David Snow's deadly rampage. Always trust your instincts, she said. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening.